So recently, I was invited to speak at the annual retreat of a large international nonprofit organization. I was honored to be invited. I was so excited to gather with this group of people overseas and take them through what I sense God had put on my heart. I was invited to be the only speaker of the retreat. Uh, it was over four days. There were six main sessions that I was uh, to bring content into. And uh, I remember being pretty nervous. It was one of my first times to be overseas and speak. And I was just really so prepared to, to bring what I sensed God had put on my heart and, and felt so deeply honored to be able to do this for this group of people. And I remember sitting there in the very first session. I'm, I'm sitting on the front row. I'm going through my notes. I'm drastically trying to build the confidence in my heart to stand in front of this room that's packed full of all these people. And the CEO of the organization, he gets up onto the platform to introduce me, to welcome me uh, to the conference. And, and here's what he says. He goes, Unfortunately, the person that I really wanted to be here to speak at this retreat couldn't make it this year. So I'm grateful that um, uh, Pastor Andrew Gardner from the Vine Church in Hong Kong can be with us today. I mean, can you imagine it, right? I'm sitting there, and I've been introduced in lots of different ways throughout some 20 years of preaching, but I've never been introduced as the clear second choice. And so I'm sitting there, and all that inspiration and all that hope and encouragement is just drained from me. I'm suddenly feeling like I'm weighing like 400 kilograms. I like trudge up to the platform for my opening speech, and I get in front of all these people, and here's what comes out of my mouth. I say, hey, everyone, I'm plan B. No one likes to be second A. I mean, none of us train hard for the silver medal, right? Like, like second is the great amnesia of history. No one ever remembers who didn't win the prize, who didn't get the cup, who wasn't the one who actually succeeded. The reason why we don't like second is because second reminds us that somebody else did better. Somebody else performed more. Somebody else was more desired than us. When we're in second, it hurts our ego. It hurts who we are. And it's an uncomfortable place to be. And so I think as humanity, we do everything everything we can to try to avoid the nastiness of being in second place. The reality is, I think we do this in our churches. I, th I think so, so much of the Christian faith is so often from the pulpit shaped around this idea that as Christians, we never have to worry about second place. No, as Christians, we get to be first, don't we? Yes, we do. We're victorious. We're the overcomers. Oh, we use words like we're the chosen and we get to go to heaven, the ultimate first place prize. And the reality is when we push ourselves into this idea that we should be in first place, we actually have to stop for a second and realize that we completely missed the point of Christianity. That yes, it's true. As Christians, we will be victorious. We will rise again. We will be at some point with our heavenly father. Those things are amazing. They're the great promises of our faith. But here's the irony and the beauty of the Christian faith. We actually win by losing. We actually win by actually being way second place, by giving up ourselves, by laying our crowns down, by actually picking up our cross and denying ourselves. You will never get to where God wants you with a desire to be in first place. Here's the reality. First place has always been and will always be reserved for Jesus. He is the one who is victorious. He is first. We are second. 
See, this desire to be first has always been the antithesis of the gospel. It's a desire that kicked Satan out of heaven. It's, it's one, of the, one of the temptations that Satan brings Jesus in the wilderness. The, the desire to be first overcame the disciples as Jesus gained in popularity. And they said to him, who's going to sit at your right hand and sit at your left hand in glory? The desire to be first, I think, has crushed the global church over almost 2,000 years of history. And it's created so many problems in leadership. And here's the reality. Here's the reason why. The attributes of first are things like glory and power and authority and, and worship. Things that are rightly for Jesus. And here's the thing, as humanity places itself in a position of first, when we try to grab a hold of attributes like power and authority and glory, we get so easily seduced by them. They corrupt us. They corrupt our hearts because these are attributes that are reserved for Jesus. If the desire for first is the antithesis of the gospel, the desire to be second is fitting and deserving of it. Because the idea of being second is the idea of some of the great themes that we see in the Gospels. The idea of humility. The idea of honesty. The idea of serving the other. The idea of loving your neighbor as yourself. The idea of realizing that there is somebody else who is as important, more important, more needful, more anointed. That somebody else gets my life. I can pour myself out towards them. Christmas is a celebration that humanity gets to be second. Because Christmas is all about the idea that Jesus comes that Jesus himself comes to model and to demonstrate what the Christian life looks like as we, as we look at the beauty of the birth of Jesus. I love how the Apostle Paul brings it to us in Philippians chapter 2. Paul says this, that even Jesus, the rightful one to be first, didn't hold being equal with God, something to be grasped, but instead Jesus humbled himself. That Jesus came in the incarnation as a human that he was willing to take off that power and that authority and lay it down. Why? So he could serve us. And what Jesus does in his life and his death and his resurrection is models for us what it is to be in that place of second. Everything Jesus did was to honor the reality of where we are to be. And it blows my mind that the one who should be first chose the posture of being second to lead us out of the desire to be first into a place of second so that he could be truly glorified. I hope you're following that. Let me say it this way. One of the beautiful ways that I think Jesus models to us what it is to be in second place is that Jesus shows us what it is to be a follower. A follower is the beauty of second place. Jesus, throughout his ministry, would say this. He says, I can't say anything unless my father tells me to say it. I won't go anywhere unless my father leads me there. Jesus' whole ministry was about listening to his father and being obedient to what his father was saying because he was humbling, modeling something of what it is to be a follower. And, and this is so beautiful. It's Jesus consciously and deliberately demonstrated to us the art of what it is to be a follower. And, and I call it an art because it's not a science. Following after something is, a, is an art. It's an expression of creativity. 
It's, it's individual. It feels our own experience following someone takes practice. It's a sacrifice in order to do so. We have to constantly fight that ego and that pride that would want to put us in front. Being a follower enables us to put Jesus in that rightful place. The beauty of being able to do that establishes for us something of the centrality of the kingdom of God. That the foundation of everything we do comes from the idea that we get to follow Jesus. You know, I I always think of it this way. I think following is like the undercoat of the kingdom of God. It's like that first piece that's put on that canvas by an artist and he's gonna paint over it many, many times, but the ultimate color at the end only shines so deep and so beautiful because of the undercoat that was first placed on the canvas. Our following, our welcome into what it is to follow Jesus is the undercoat of God's kingdom. It's the foundation of everything. And it's exactly what John the Baptist does in the final movement of his ministry. We've traced these movements that he's been doing throughout our Advent time. We've looked at that first movement of calling people to repentance. The second movement of welcoming them to the desert place where they could meet with God. The third movement, as we saw last week, of being invited into the waters of baptism and the ultimate experience of the washing of the Holy Spirit in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And now, right at the end of his life, Right towards the end of his ministry, John does the final thing. He releases the crowds to follow Jesus. John ultimately says, I must decrease, he must increase. Advent, if it's anything, is about the idea of preparing ourselves to truly follow Jesus. And I want to show you some ways in which I think John invites us into being followers of Jesus today. And you may have been a follower of Christ for many years. Maybe like me, you've been a follower of Christ since you were pretty young. Or maybe this is a new experience for you. Wherever we are, I think so often we end up finding ourselves slipping back into the centrality of the world where we become the focus and Jesus is like this deity on the shelf that we turn to in times of need. May I challenge you today that we need to learn what it is to follow Jesus again. Let me read this to us from John chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 29. The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and he said this, look the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except for the fact that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me this. The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Take a moment to think about the context here. This is just probably a day or two after John has actually baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. 
That baptism is taking place. And now John realizes that the final movement of his ministry is to try to release all the disciples that had gathered around him. Because John had become popular. John's message had gone out to the people. They were excited that the Messiah was about to come. And and here's John now saying, okay, I I don't need all of this. I'm not to be in that place of first. If you're following me, you're in trouble. No, no, I need to release you. And so as he sees Jesus walk past on this one day, he shouts out with his whole voice in front of all these people, look, look, there's the Lamb of God. Like like right here, this is the one who's going to take away the sins of the world. I'm not that one. This is the one. I, I love this. He says, look, there is the Lamb of God. Now, that phrase, the Lamb of God, it's actually only used here in John's ministry and also in the book of Revelation, but it's actually not very prominent in the New Testament as a whole. And the question we should ask ourselves is, why is John using that particular phrase in this moment? Well, he's drawing from beautiful Old Testament imagery. The, the, the whole imagery of the Passover. In the Passover where they slaughtered the lambs and the Jewish people who were in, enslaved in Egypt took the blood from the lambs and put it on their doorposts and their walls so that the angel of death would not come across their door so that anybody in that household would be protected. And here's John some, how many years later, and he's pointing at Jesus and he's saying, this is the new Passover right here. This is the one whose blood will need to be shed by calling him the Lamb of God. Right at the start of Jesus's ministry, John is declaring that he's going to die. I mean, that's what lambs were for. They were for sacrifice to be slaughtered. And and here's John saying, this is the one who's going to be slaughtered so that all of the sins of the world would be forgiven. No longer would it just be blood over the walls and the doors for the Jewish people. Notice, he says, for all the world. Like everybody, Jews and Gentiles alike, will come to have their sins forgiven because of this one. Look, there is the Lamb of God. And I think that's so powerful and so beautiful that we can, we can remember that he forgives our sins, that he can release these things from us, that, that we get to follow him. And, and John says in verse 30, he says it this way. He goes, this is the one that I meant when I said a man comes after me who has surpassed me because he was before me. This is classic John. I mean, imagine if you said that. This is the one who was after me, before me, because he was before me. Like, this doesn't make sense. Like, what are you talking about, John? This is like, you can imagine his disciples going, like, did he eat too many locusts today? Like, dude, chill out. Like, what you, I don't get what's going on right now, right? Here's what John's saying. He's saying, Jesus is first, always. He was before me. He's going to be after me. He surpasses me. I get to be a follower of the Lamb of God, the one who forgives my sin, this one right here. Jesus' ministry was to point out the Lamb of God, to show people the way to Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I find that incredibly challenging at this time of the year. As I see Christmas just coming up on Friday of this week, I'm thinking to myself, am I pointing people towards Jesus? Like, like does my life The things I say, the way I act, who I am, does it make space for the reality where I'm trying to lead my sphere of influence to the place where their sins can be forgiven? Am I an evangelist? Am I pointing out to people that this is the Lamb of God? This is deeply challenging because I want to be honest about it. I think so often as Christians, we might have this idea that Jesus is the Lamb of God, but we're not really pointing towards him. In fact, most of our lives are actually pointing in the opposite direction. 
Rather than saying, look, the Lamb of God. Here's what I think we often end up saying. Look, the servant of God. And we put ourselves once again in that first place. If Advent is anything, if Advent is this call to us to prepare ourselves for the coming of Jesus, both individually and as a community, we must ask ourselves, who are we pointing towards? Who is getting my focus? And I I want to invite you to reflect on that right here in the middle of this message. I want you to take a moment now to ask yourself, is my life really pointing to Jesus? I mean, is he really my focus point right now? Or, Or am I actually kind of pointing towards myself? Or I'm pointing towards my career or, or I'm pointing towards this job that I have, or I'm pointing towards something else in my life, or I'm, I'm pointing towards my social media that's about me, I'm pointing, whatever it might be, we, we find ourselves pointing in lots of different directions, but are we releasing people through our lifestyle, through our words and our actions and our voice, are we releasing people to follow the Lamb of God, or are we inviting people to celebrate the servant of God? May I open your hearts to this thought right now? And the way we're going to do that is in a moment, I'm just going to invite the worship team. They're going to come and actually lead us in a song. And this song won't be too familiar to you. It'll probably be new. And I want to encourage you to read the lyrics. It's a song that celebrates this power that is in the name of Jesus, this idea of the king being kings, that he is one that's seated on the throne. It's a song that celebrates pointing to the Lamb of God. And so as you reflect on this, as you listen to the song, as you allow the lyrics to take heart in yourself, allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. And if there's any way that he shows you that you haven't been pointing in the right direction, just in the beautiful kindness of his presence, bring it to him. And after we finish this song, I'm going to come back to us and I'm going to show us what happens in the rest of the story. Oh, no. 
what happens next in our story as John continues to release people to Jesus. I'm going to pick it up in verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what is it that you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the 10th hour. I love this. This is the, the next moment in the narrative. And it says right again, the next day. So immediately after what we had just been talking about before, here's John and he sees Jesus again in the crowds. And he once again shouts out and points out, here's the Lamb of God. But something different takes place this time. Two, just two, but two of John's disciples who'd been with John the whole time, who had seen John and admired John and modeled their lives after John, who had followed him, are then aware that this one is the Lamb of God, that this one is the one who is about to take the sin from the world. And so they leave John and they begin to walk in his direction. They begin to come towards him, to follow after him. And it, and it seems like such a small thing in the text, but it actually is so much. It's actually so powerful. These are the first two disciples of Jesus. And it challenges me because here's the thought. See, see I think we can, we can very easily be people who can point out that Jesus is the Lamb of God and yet fail to actually follow him ourselves. I think one of the dangers of the church, I'm going to be really honest, I think one of the dangers of the church is that we can be filled with people who sing about the Lamb of God and yet fail to truly follow Him. And, and what, what can end up happening, particularly I would say in a church like the Vine sometimes, is that people can end up following a brand, following a church, following a speaker or a leader and not actually following Jesus. If there's something we are completely about here at the Vine is that we must decrease, He must increase. That we must be less, He must be more. That, that, that is the whole beauty of the Christmas story, that in the incarnation one comes who takes that power and authority and all the thing that can seduce and corrupt us and brings it to someone else where we can stand back and go, there's the Lamb of God and actually follow Him. 
be released to give our lives to him. I mean, I mean what, a, what a joy that is. What a, what a gift. That, my friends, is the heart of the gospel. And notice what happens when we follow after Jesus. It says in verse 38, turning around, Jesus saw them following him and he asked them, what, what do you want? <laughs> I love this. This is classic Jesus, right? So there's Jesus just going about his normal day, right? And he's got a couple of dudes following him now. And he's like, what? Like, have you ever been in like Ikea? I've done this many times. It drives me nuts. You're in Ikea. There's hundreds of people around you. And you're walking. And you turn left. And then some people turn left with you. And you turn right. And some people turn right with you. And you want to turn around and go, what do you want? Like, what's going on? This is like the classic Hong Kong crowd thing. Here's Jesus. Got two people for the first time following him. And he turns around. When you read it in English, it's like almost Jesus is like, what do you want? Like, why are you following me? You know? It's beautiful. Actually, in the Greek, if you read it, it says it more like this. What is on your heart? Isn't that cool? Like in the English, it's like, what do you want? But in the Greek, it's more, what is on your heart? In other words, Jesus turns to these two people and he says, almost, why are you following me? What is your desire? What are you trying to seek? What is ultimately in your heart? It's a, it's a powerful question. It welcomes us into a different place. It reminds us that following Jesus. It's not about Jesus walking ahead of us and us just trying to diligently kind of walk in his footsteps like we're trying to be perfect like Jesus. Following Jesus is a relationship. Following Jesus is a dialogue. It's a community. It's a, it's a chance to actually commune with the creator of all things. When we follow Jesus, we're not distant to him, trying to keep up with him. We're walking alongside with him. In fact, actually, the Greek word for following here means actually to, to journey on a path or to go on a path with someone. So you're walking almost alongside of Jesus. And there's this like kind of dialogue that you're happening with. That's the beauty and the simplicity of what it is to follow Jesus. If you, if you want to know just basically, what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to live your life in dialogue with the creator of the universe. To have a conversation with him. To listen to him. To hear him. To ask of him. And here are these two disciples that Jesus turns to in this moment. And he says, what is on your heart? Imagine if Jesus turned to you right now and said those words to you. What is on your heart? How would you respond? Maybe you might say, all right, yeah, I, I've got a question for you, God. I want to ask you, why is it that bad people always seem to get the good stuff? Or maybe you might ask, yeah, God, why is it that when I pray sometimes, it feels like my prayers don't get unanswered? Or maybe you'd want to ask, why does bad stuff happen to good people? You know, like there's a whole bunch of questions that we might have on our hearts. If God turned to us and said, what is on your heart? And I want you to hear what these two disciples respond with. Could have asked anything of the creator of the universe. Here's what they say. In verse 38, they say this. They say, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Like, where are you staying today? Because we want to come and be with you. We want to just spend our time with you. We want to sit in your presence. We want to be with you. If you want to know what following Jesus essentially is, it is exactly that. It is discovering where Jesus is in your life and spending time with him. 
just desiring to be present with him, wanting to walk side by side with him, wanting to be in the very places in our city where he is. The invitation of their hearts is to say, you're the, you're the lamb of God. You're the one who's going to take the sin away from the world. You're the one who's rightfully first. Oh, power and authority and majesty and glory is yours. We just want to be with you. That, that heart cry of being a follower of Jesus is as simple as that. You don't have to be learned. You don't have to be excellent. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to carry that desire that says, God, I just want to be with you. I want to know you. I want to hear you. I want to sense your presence with me. I want to see what it is that you're up to. Would you lead? I want to follow. Would you reveal? I want to see. Would you tell me? Because I want to learn. It's a dialogue and a community with the creator of the world. I mean, what could be better than that? And I love how Jesus responds to them. He says this. He says, come, he replied, and you will see. Think about this for a sec. What is on your heart? We want to know where you're staying. You want to be with me? Come then, and you will see. Jesus invites them to not only be with him, but to see the things that he is about to do. And I think this is so profound. If there is a sentence that sums up all of Advent, where Advent is about the idea that I get to come to be with Jesus, that I get to come to prepare myself for the coming of Jesus. That's what Advent's all about. Here's Jesus turning Advent around, and he's saying, you know what Advent is for him? It's for him to say, come to me. You come to me, and I will show you what I'm up to. Jesus stands over your workplace and he says, come and you will see. He stands over your marriage and he says, come and you will see. He stands over those relationships that are broken in your life right now and he's saying, come and you will see. He stands over your pain and your hurt of 2020 and he says, come and you will see. He's present in the worst places, in the places that are the hardest to find. He's present in every aspect of our city. And he's crying out to us and he's saying, come and you will see. I will show you what I'm doing in all the places where you thought I was absent. Emmanuel, God with us. This is the Christmas message, church. This is the shepherds in the fields hearing the angels say, come and you will see. This is the Magi wondering what is ahead of them, following a star that's telling them, come and you will see. Christmas is the manger that says to the world, come and you will see. Where is it in your life that you want to see the activity of Jesus? You're called not for first place. You're called not to increase, but decrease. You're called to that great and glorious gift of following after Jesus. And in doing so, being in dialogue and community with him, wondering in your heart where he is, and then in the miracle of faith, seeing him show it to you. Him saying those words, come and you will see. Where for you do those words resonate most today? Where, as you prepare your heart for Christmas on Friday, are you longing to see Jesus 
the most. That's what I encourage you to bring your prayer to today. As we finish our time in this series, as we finish Advent, as we get ready to celebrate Jesus' birth on Christmas Day, we do so from that posture of following after him, hungry to see him, revealed more in Christmas in 2020 than he has ever been in any time of history. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Let me pray for us. Let's pray. Father, for whoever is listening to this right now, where this is a word in season for them, maybe some who are listening have put themselves in the place of first, where they've been saying more, look the servant of God rather than look the lamb of God. Lord, if that's the reality for any of us, thank you that we can bring that to you in this moment. Thank you that you love us, you forgive us, and you release us, Lord. And so we come in that place of repentance as we've spoken about every week. And we ask you now to wash us clean again, Lord. If we've allowed ego and pride to center the universe around ourselves, would you forgive us, Lord? And may we take on that mantle of John the Baptist today. And may our lives point people to seeing Jesus. May we decrease. May Jesus increase. Or maybe you've been listening to this today and for you, in all of the things that have happened this year and all the stuff, maybe you need to get that fire again in your heart that says to the Lord, God, I want to follow you. I, I, I want to just be where you are. And I, and I realize I've been distracted by so many things, but it's simple. I just want to follow you, Lord. I, I want to be in conversation with you. I want to have dialogue with you again. I want to hear your words spoken after me. Show me where you are, Lord. And for some of you today, those words are a great encouragement to you. Come and you will see. And wherever it might be that you're looking for a breakthrough, wherever it might be that you're desiring for more of Him, hear the words spoken by the Spirit over you. Come and you will see. Lord Jesus, for anyone here who's listening to this right now, I want to pray that that would be a reality for them this Christmas that you would show them where you're staying in their businesses, in their marriages, in their families, in their relationships, in the places of healing they need, and all of the things that are going on that are stressing them. Would you reveal the power of your glory to them? And would you show yourself new and afresh this Christmas? And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.